0: Welcome, everybody. This, I believe, is going to be our uh, last sermon on look at the book. So we're finished. Awesome. (laughs) We're done. As uh, I was sharing with you last week, we're going to continue on the second part of Revelation. And here are a few slides just as a reminder of some things we covered last week. What apocalyptic language is all about, we find this kind of language not only in this last book of the Bible, but also in the books of Ezekiel, parts of Daniel, some of the prophets utilize this kind of language, and you have to understand that uh, the Bible uses this kind of language, very highly symbolic, very figurative not to conceal things, not to kind of give us a hard time reading about it. It might seem that way to us, but this language is meant to show things, to reveal things. Matter of fact, the word apocalypsis in the Greek means to reveal or to show. It does not mean to conceal. And this kind of language uses symbols to render a new interpretation of reality, what Steve was telling us. It's kind of trying to show us what some things are gonna look like kind of peeling back the curtain, like in The Wizard of Oz, to show us the reality of really what's going on. And it is it is intentionally poetic and intentionally figurative. The symbols themselves are the message. What may be difficult for us sometimes to grasp is the kind of culture that we need to be familiar with in order to make sense of these symbols in the message. So that is probably what uh, makes it sometimes hard or makes it appear as it, as the symbols are concealing something. But once we understand the culture and the history and the symbolism of that time, then the, the message itself comes to life. And so we talked about evil and suffering last week. And the answer to the evil and the suffering in this world are given in these symbols and in the imagery given to John by Jesus. And it is claimed that Jesus doesn't attempt To explain why there is such a thing. Why does evil exist? That's not the concern. That's not the focus of Revelation or even the Bible. But it's really how to live victoriously despite it. How to live as people that are not uh, taken hostage by this evil as it can sometimes happen to other people. And so we can conclude from our earthly experience, some of us anyway that live for a while now, that we need this tension in our lives daily in order to make our faith grow. In the absence of tension, our muscles don't grow. They get flabby, they get weak. The same thing happens to faith. It is the daily uh, message, the daily focus Jesus gives us of carrying that cross that creates this tension in our heart and in our mind that is what causes faith to grow. Faith needs to be exercised the same way our muscles need to be exercised. And so from Revelation, we conclude that things are not as they seem, as the Holy Spirit revealed to John. There's an imagery and a thought process that evil tries to impose on us. It tries to sabotage our lives, sabotage our hope, sabotage our plans. Uh, But the reality is provided by Christ in order for us to escape the brainwashing effect that the world has on humans. It's so funny that oftentimes the world will say to Christians, Oh, you guys are brainwashed by the word of God. But it's quite the opposite. The people in the world have been brainwashed by this imagery of evil, by this plan and this world order. Uh, everybody has been brainwashed into thinking that, Oh, you need to do these cer- certain things to have a su- sex- successful life. And so they define success very differently than the world does. And so we need to make a decision early in our lives as we get to know Christ. What are we going to follow? Because if we're going to follow this world order and its goals, we're not going to really be joyful people. And we're going to be people that are going to suffer from a lot of anxiety and from a lot of other emotional issues that we see people suffering in this generation. Because the the goals of the world don't produce joy. They don't produce peace. And they don't give you lasting happiness. And so that's the message that God revealed to John one only has to trust Jesus and his gospel message in order to have that curtain lifted so that we can see with the eyes of faith. So we can gain that heavenly perspective, as Steve was saying. And so Revelation teaches us that, yes, oftentimes, you know, if you do feel anxious, if you do feel anxiety, if you do feel hopeless, well, that's your human, human sight. And we all get to feel that at one point in time or another. Even Jesus felt that in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, he wanted to die. He felt so hopeless. He felt so anxious. He felt depressed. And many of the prophets, as we read throughout the Old Testament, feel the same way because it's not easy to live in the midst of this. But Revelation teaches us that although things may look chaotic and senseless to us at times. The fact is, God reigns. That's what John is shown in chapter 4. He's taken to the very throne room of God and says, hey, look, see, things are just as they should be. <laughs> There's nothing happening that ought to concern you. God's got it all under control. And God, and so God reigns. And so John is centered from that very moment he's taken to the throne room of God. God reigns. And Jesus is going to come soon. And he's going to do away with this world order for good. That Those are facts that we can guarantee because God guarantees them. So the question every human being needs to ask themselves is, which side of eternity are you on right now? Which side of eternity are you gunning for? What perspective is it that you want to develop? Because the battle lines have been drawn. That's a clear message in the book of Revelation. The battle lines have been drawn already. And so we need to make sure that we choose to side with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, because we know what's going to happen to those who don't want Him to reign. They can't dethrone Him; it's impossible. <laughs> you can't do that. You can't. You can't uh, form a coup against God. Satan and his angels tried, and what happened to them? They were cast down to the earth. And once again, if they're going to try to do that, they're just going to be taken to the side, because you cannot do that with God Almighty. If we want to be people that want to join Jesus in living in the new world order and experience what it's like to live victoriously and powerfully and all the lees that you didn't get to experience here on this earth, then you choose to side with the king of kings. Because those who don't choose to side with the king will not be welcome in his kingdom. That's another message that's very clear in the book of Revelation. The reason being is that Jesus doesn't force anybody. If you don't want Jesus reigning in your life, Jesus is fine. I'm not here to force you to do that. But don't expect then to live with the blessings that I give. Because you can only live with that if you're with me outside of me. Jesus says, there is no peace. There is no joy. There is no purpose. So I'm not going to force you to follow me. I'm not going to force you to reign with me. But don't then expect or don't complain uh, like the rich man did in Hades, in Tartarus, of the heat, of the uncomfortability, of the suffering. Because that's the very reason why Jesus came on earth to deliver us from that. So That's a very clear message also in the book of Revelation. Those who refuse him, they're going to live in another world order for sure. Uh, but it's going to be one that's much worse than this life. You would have preferred to live in this life with all manner of plagues attacking your body than in the lake of fire. Living in this life with cancers and plagues and pus coming out of your skin and face is heaven compared to the experience in the lake of fire. That's another reality that also we have to understand. So those of us who decide to follow the king, we live in a very unique way. We live in an interesting way right now because we're experiencing a duality which increases that tension. In our mind and in our heart, which is again, it's necessary in order for our faith to grow. We have one foot in the world still because we still live in a body. And I love uh, Romans chapter seven, how Paul talks about that. He says, "What I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I want to do." And and I have this tension inside of me, and that's that that dual nature. And we have to decide which one do we want to develop. As Steve was saying, are we, are we going to try and develop the inner man? The new soul that was born again, that actually does have hope? Or are we going to start, continue to develop the part of us, the flesh, that gives us the passions of anger, uh, idolatry, uh, all these other feelings and emotions that really cause chaos in our lives? Which one are we going to develop? We're still very vulnerable to chaos. So we're still going to experience anxiety and depression and all these other things. We're probably going to be deceived in this life. We're probably going to be abused. All right. Those are all things that are going to happen in this world order. But we have another foot in God's kingdom. That's the difference. And we're savoring, as the psalmist, uh, psalmist says, we're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Can you taste it? We surely can. And that's one of the things that makes us strive forward. We have been born again, born into a different reality that requires the eyes of faith and a loyal heart to God in order to see and experience this new world order that is being developed. As Jesus told Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit, so it's a. I know I used the word before extrasensory experience, but that was really the wrong thing. It's a meta sensory experience because it's beyond the physical reality. So, equipped with God's gifts received in our new birth, what are some of these gifts? Forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. Our robes have been washed, that's the symbolism used in the book of Revelation. We've been given a clear conscience. How many people? die for a clear conscience. They live with this guilt all their lives that just weighs them down and that destroys them. It eats them up. But in Christ, we have a clear conscience and we have the Holy Spirit. So it can be done. What is impossible with man is possible with God because of these gifts that he has given us. We can evade these pitfalls that are launched at us daily by the evil that surrounds us. Success and victory can be ours because We're no longer measuring them the way the world measures them. But we're using God's standard. And that takes time. That takes spiritual maturity for us to abandon the old standards uh, and and live by God's standards. You know, sometimes we get nervous. We're like, okay, which which standards do I follow? Because I'm still in the world. So I got to kind of do some of the things. I got to live in the world. And yes, we as Christians, we live in the world but we're not of the world and it takes spiritual maturity to discern between those two states success is is measured really in the long term effects of our faith not in the short term achievements that could be accomplished in this temporary realm because if that were so then at the end of the day anything that you have achieved uh, in this physical realm is really a failure because it's going to fail at the end of everything so no matter how much i may accumulate No matter how much I may climb that ladder of supposed success, when all is said and done and then New World Order comes in, where does that leave me? (laughs) It it leaves me a big loser. That's what it does. So we really have to adopt God's standards of living. And the things that we want to achieve here that can roll into the New World Order are things like faith, hope, love, the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the things that build for us an eternal treasure in heaven. And those are things that, we, that are retained in the long term. And, and think about this. You know, when somebody is on their deathbed, right? I don't know if you had the opportunity, but me as a preacher for the last 35 years, I've been in many deathbeds. You know, I've, I've been besides many people at their hour of dying, including my own mother. And people at that point in time in their lives, what are they pining for? What are they, what are they thinking? They're not thinking about how much money I have in the bank account. They're not thinking about, oh, all the things that I have. They're not thinking about, oh, the jobs that I should have done or the the schedule that I should have kept. They're really thinking about the people that they loved, the people that they failed to ask forgiveness for. The people that they wanted to see before they passed. The things that bring faith, things that bring hope, love, and all the fruit of the spirit. Whether whatever they believe, it doesn't matter what they believe, that's what people are thinking about in their deathbed. So the key to victory is not found in fighting fire with fire, trying to fight the world the way the world fights. You know, we're not trying to subdue the world. That's not how we live victoriously. That's not what Jesus did. He wasn't trying to fight Satan. He was resisting Satan's temptations, yes. but not fighting him the way the world would. He's didn't try to outsmart Satan. And you can't outsmart Satan. Satan has lived a whole lot longer than you. And he's a lot wiser, not because he's smart, but because he's old. It's not by trying to get ready for the zombie apocalypse, like some people say. <laughs> you know, some people say, oh, man, you know, got to get ready for the zombie apocalypse. You know, we got to make sure we fortify our basement and, you know, have a lot of supplies. Get the weapons, you know, get the grenades, you know, let's get our anti-tank missiles ready combat ready you know the way of the world that's not the way we we live victoriously and certainly not by trying to figure out when Christ is coming quite a few people have done that and have had, have had to live with egg on their face for the rest of their life no that's not the way we do it these are not effective and they usually bring worse results for us they bring disappointment bring hopelessness because what is enough how many guns should I need to fight this zombie apocalypse you know how many uh things should i pack my basement up with in order to feel secure that i can outlast a nuclear war what is enough so it usually brings sense of hopelessness vulnerability uh, a sense of feeling victimized and powerless as we often feel right in the world those are normal feelings that you get from living this life evil really messes with your head Sometimes people will try to Christianize waging war with the world. And it will bring maybe some favorable results at times that you might think are favorable. But there is no really permanent change in the hearts and in the minds of men. Because evil does not change by our efforts to fight it. No matter how much I try to fight evil, it's not going to change. I might persuade some people to join Jesus but I'm not going to change evil. It's not going to happen. Don't be deceived. I'm not saying that some of these methods are bad and that you shouldn't participate in some peaceful activism on this earth and maybe fight for your rights like Paul did. You know, Paul used his Roman citizenship uh, to sort of take his case to the Supreme Court at the time. But he used it as, a, as an opportunity to preach the gospel as he went along. Right? Right? I myself love to engage in activism and I frequently write to our representatives in Congress. I vote, but I'm careful. I'm not deceived. I'm not out to change the world. That's not my point. That's not my purpose. I'm not out to try to change evil. Many people have tried that and have achieved some success, but that's not the kind of fight Jesus is calling us to do. The key to victory really is in following the footsteps of Jesus, And that is the hardest thing to do, which it all boils down to this phrase, being a faithful witness. That's a phrase you see attributed throughout the book of Revelation to Jesus Christ, not even to his people, because he is the real faithful witness. He is the one who is faithful and true. We're, we're trying really hard and thankfully we're covered by his blood and by his grace. So that we can somehow follow in his footsteps, walk in the light as he is in the light. But that's what we're trying to do here. It is counterintuitive to be be victorious in the flesh. Because it's the opposite of what the flesh thinks. Only those who are born again and grow in this identity and pursue to develop the spiritual perspective and groom it and mature it are able to comprehend this narrow way and stick with it. Peter will say, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And notice that what's highlighted here is the suffering of Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't complain about your suffering. That's what you were called to to do, to suffer. The real disciples of Christ will understand that. And will embrace whatever suffering it is that they have to endure at the time. Because that is how we worship God in spirit and in truth. That is how we uh, uh, offer a living sacrifice. That is our true act of worship, as Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 say. That is what God is pleased with. And so we follow in these footsteps of Jesus Jesus himself, or John, starts out here in Revelation 1, 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, who is to come. That's like a nod to God, you know, the I am, not who I was, but Jesus who was, who is, who is to come, the eternity of God, from the seven spirits before his throne, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. The firstborn from the dead. He is the pioneer going ahead of us into this new reality. The ruler of the kings of earth. It's not the dragon who rules, he is the ruler. To him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory, power forever and ever. What an introduction. From John in the book of Revelation. And so we see here that our model is to really follow in the steps of this faithful witness, as I put down here, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to learn to be this faithful witness. What does that involve? Well, I, I list some of the things here from the Word of God that we know it involves. Every one of us knows this doing God's will, holding fast to His Word, persevering through suffering. Walking in the light, as as our brother Robert shared with us a a few weeks ago, and what that means, to walk in the light as he is in the light, it involves confession, it involves being transparent, it involves repenting, changing the way we think about things, right? Which means changing your opinion. Now, that's how we measure maturity. How many times have you changed your opinion in the last 10 years? If you say, none, I have not changed my opinion, then, then you must not be a very mature person. Because a person who grows and is growing as he follows Jesus, inevitably will have to change how they see things. Because we're changing to see a heavenly perspective, right? not one here of the earth. So throughout all of this, to drive the point home of this, of this duality that we're living right now, John has shown some symbols that illustrate this stark contrast. This is one of my favorite ones here. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, when God comes out and, and He has the scroll and He's got seven seals on it. And the question is asked: Well, who can open the scrolls and unseal the seals? And and having a voice is heard, nothing, no one. Nobody is worthy enough to do this. No one was found that would be worthy enough to open the scrolls and unseal the seal. And that made John cry. And that made John feel really, really sad. I don't know about you. Have you ever had a dream? You know, I'm, I'm not much of a crier in, in, this, in this life, in my conscious awake st- uh, state of awakening, right? Uh, I'm not much of a crier. But I've had some dreams where the waterworks come and I can't stop them. It's like when you're dream- in, in a dream, you're in another state of consciousness where you feel emotions a little different. Does that happened to you? Maybe I'm weird. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But that happens to me, like I'm in such an emotional state that 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 wouldn't be in reality. And, and when I wake up from those dreams, I'm like, wow, you know, okay, I can feel things quite deeply, you know, as, as the dream showed me. And I think that's John was in, in the spirit. He was in a different state of consciousness at the time that he is writing these things. And so I picture John weeping, 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 perhaps in a way that that he would not have wept in his awake state because no one could be found to unseal the scroll. But one of the elders says to him in verse five, don't weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Wow, you know, how happy John must have been, joyful and and John was like, The lion of Judah. Wow, who is this? I want to see what he looks like. But when John turns to see who this elder was talking about, he actually perceives something quite different. And this is one of those stark contrasts that you see in the book of Revelation. In verse 6, he says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Now, I'm going to put a pause here. I looked for images of a slain lamb, but I, I, I thought that they were a little too graphic to show in this setting, and I didn't want to scare anybody. <laughs> but this is very tame, this image. Picture in your head what a slaughtered lamb, because that's how John described it, a slaughtered animal. You wouldn't want to look at it for too long. I don't know about you, but... If, if, if I'm driving down the street or walking and I see something that's been slaughtered and you know, I want to step quickly away from it. But that's what John saw when he looked. A lamb looking as if it had been slain. The King James Version would say slaughtered. I think that's a stronger word. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Sent out into all the earth. Notice this clever imagery put here by the Holy Spirit. John is told of a lion that has triumphed. So in, in your head, right? And this shows how uh <laughs> how different we think, how unheavenly our perspective is. Because he expects, oh yeah, lion who triumphed, mighty, like. How I was telling you last week, Thor, you know, that's, that, that's what triumph looks like. Not some weak animal that has been slain. Not, not something that's been killed. It doesn't look too mighty. It doesn't look triumphant. But that's what John is presented here. John turns expecting to see a lion, but he sees this lamb. And not just a lamb, but a slaughtered lamb. So now we begin to understand what triumph looks like. The Lion of Judah triumphed because he became a lamb willing to be slaughtered. That's how you triumph against evil. Evil has no recourse against that kind of thinking. Evil cannot triumph against those who adopt living in the footsteps of Christ. There is no way. Satan can touch you when this is your mindset. This is victory. And that's how we are born again, right? That's how we are born again into this new world order. That's how we're shown that we can defeat evil in this realm. And that's why the cross becomes such a powerful symbol that Paul himself says, I will speak of nothing except Jesus And him crucified. And sometimes we wonder, why why did you want to focus on that? (laughs) Because that's how you triumph over evil. That's why. That's how the slaughtered lamb triumphed. And was able to open the scrolls. And that's how we are born again, isn't it? We're not born again by doing some kind of feat of strength. Like, uh, you know, Festivus for the rest of us. Uh, That's not how we show that we're stronger. or, Or that we triumph over things. That's not how we show that we're ready to become members of the body of Christ. No. What does it require to be to, to see the kingdom of God? To enter the kingdom of God? What is required? A new birth, which implies a death to self. Again, following in Jesus' footsteps. We need to be willing to be slaughtered in order to be raised to live in newness of life. Coming soon, January 2022. Me, your host, Pedro Gullibert from the Long Island Church of Christ, will be reading with you the Bible in One Year, a chronological Bible reading using God's Word translation by God's Word to the Nation's Missions Society. Don't miss it. Subscribe to the podcast so that you can get the notification January 1st, 2022. God bless you. We need to learn to pledge allegiance, not to an army, not to some rebels, not to some group of rebels or a gang or a man-made organization, but by giving our lives up to Jesus and pledging allegiance to him as king of kings and lord of lords, since he was the one who died. And gave his life for us. So when we're baptized, we're joining him in this walk, which requires what? A death to self at first. A surrender. A willingness to be slaughtered. A willingness to be fired from your job for doing the right thing. A willingness to be abused. To suffer in all those ways that we as Americans think it would be unthinkable to, to do. No, well, we're not following America's standards, are we? Got to be careful. It's one of the ways evil operates. No, we follow something new. And so we have to be okay, brothers and sisters, with being victimized and abused and slaughtered. Are you okay with that? Doesn't Doesn't sound like fun. But that is the way of Christ. That is the way of victory. When we are baptized, We're surrendering our fight in this world. We're giving up our stakes here and joining Jesus' way of doing things. And we're clothed now with garments of white, of righteousness, forgiven, receiving divine power so that we can carry those crosses because that's what we're going to do until he is revealed again. And so to conclude, I'm going to share with you how Jesus encouraged these seven churches All the numbers in the book of Revelation are very symbolic, okay? It doesn't mean that there were only seven churches. Seven is a number of completeness, especially to God. So yes, these seven churches were real churches. They did exist uh, because Jesus gives them real messages uh, couched uh, in in real situations that we can read of historically. But the symbolicness of the seven is that it's a message for all the churches, always. Because in some way or another, we're going to uh, be, be suffering some of these things that some of these churches had to suffer. Perhaps not in the same way, but certainly it will cause the same emotional suffering or physical suffering that they endured. When Jesus conquered in the form of the slaughtered lamb, likewise, our appearance and our experience in this realm is going to be full of vulnerabilities. We're going to want to feel strong, but at times we're not going to feel strong. We're going to be bullied. We're going to be abused. There are going to be many other sins in our life that we're going to try and conquer. But all these things really are trying to claw out of their perceived vulnerability to be something that they're really not. And so the strategy that Jesus gives us here enables evil to be plucked out of our lives and to break it as Jesus advises the seven churches here. He tells them, don't. Forsake your first love. Jesus warned us that we can't serve God and money. We can't be an American. We can't be a Christian American. That's, a, that's an oxymoron. We're either going to be American citizens or we're going to be Christian, citizens of the kingdom of God. That's it. <laughs> we can't do. You can't have it. There's no dual citizenship here. <laughs> you know how some countries offer dual citizenship? Not so in the kingdom of God. I can be a Christian living in America as much as I can be a Christian living in Puerto Rico or wherever else I may decide to go. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to follow the laws or be a rebel or storm the Capitol building or anything like that. Because those are things that people of the world do. Those are not things that disciples of Christ would do. Okay? Just in case the FBI is hearing me. (laughs) So we don't want to forsake our first love. We have to make sure that our allegiance remains plain and remains strong in Christ, whatever it is that we're doing. We don't want to be a hypocrite. We're not here to please people. I'm not here to please you. If something that I'm saying that's from the word of God hurts you, take it. It's from God. I'm not here to please you or entertain you. Any more that I would want you to do that for me either. We're here to please Christ, to be true to Christ. And that might look a little different in our different stages of life. And so we need to learn to give room to grow to each other, all right? And accept one another as Christ has accepted us because we remain true to Christ and that's it. We're not defining ourselves by the world, as I was saying before, but we're holding on to the word of God, not walking like dead men. You know, Psalm 1 says, do not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of mockers. Well, we don't walk the way the dead people walk, the zombies. The zombie apocalypse is already happening, you know, it's not going to happen. It is happening. When you go out in the world, zombies all over the place. No, It is happening already. But we don't fight the zombie apocalypse the way the world does. How do we help the zombies? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that can help them. So we don't walk like the dead. We walk like the living. We strengthen the inner man. And we don't want to let the, the force of evil make us lukewarm. That can happen. All these things the, the seven churches experienced. They all experience each of these things. I'm borrowing each of these from each of the seven churches, if you notice that. Okay? That's kind of like what Jesus' advice was to them to triumph or to keep being, uh, to keep enduring in the faith. Okay? And then to those who triumph, to those who are victorious, this is what he promises. Now, if you notice, all the things that are here are very figurative, very symbolic. If you ask me, Pedro, what does that mean? I'll tell you, I don't know. But this is what Jesus says will happen. You know, I'm going to eat from the tree of life in paradise. What does that mean? I don't know exactly, but it could mean that I'm going to live forever. Because the tree of life, you know, as Adam and Eve were able to eat from the tree of life, they continued living forever. When God took the tree of life away because of sin, that's when they died. So that's what that means. Number two, I'm not going to be hurt by the second death. Now, that's awesome. Because there's nothing that makes me more vulnerable here in this world than my uh, susceptibility to disease and pain and hurt. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's what scares me the most. You know, I, I should have learned karate or something. You know, <laughs> when I was younger, uh, but I but I didn't. I was learning music and computers. Yeah, any good do to fight you know death or marauders or anything like that. Sing a song to them, maybe they'll stop but now when I read this and I'm not going to be hurt by the second death, wow, okay, I'm triumphant. That makes me feel powerful because when it comes, however it's going to come, somebody sticks a knife in my heart or if I get cancer or if I get run over by a bus, whatever it may be, I'm not going to be hurt by it. Isn't that amazing? I'm powerful already. I'm already feeling it. (laughs) Number three, number three, we will eat the hidden manna. Now, I, I racked my brains. What could this mean? The hidden... I didn't, I didn't know there was hidden manna. I thought the manna was given already, you know, a long time ago. But there's a hidden manna. Did you know this? There's some secret food. It makes me It makes me remember a party. Like, I don't know about you, but when I was with my family, and we had a Christmas dinner, and, you know, all the great food come out. The pasteles, the arroz con gandura, pernil. And then all of a sudden, from... After everybody's eating a little bit, all of a sudden somebody comes out with a plate that we didn't know we had. It says, "Look what we have here!" And we're like, "Whoa!" And so when I think of the hidden man, I think about that. Jesus is going to say, "Wait till you taste this." You know, you didn't know I had it, but it's for you. I made it for you. So maybe this could, you know, there's a lot of meaning to this. This could mean there's something secret. God does speak about a lot of secret things that He has waiting for us because. He's keeping them hidden to reveal them just for us. Isn't that something? Kind of like a surprise party. You ever had a surprise party? You know, it feels great. You, know, you feel special when somebody throws a surprise party for you if you don't die of the heart attack first. <laughs> and you're like, wow, I feel great. And, and so it makes this might speak to that, you know, the hiddenness of it, the mysteriousness of it, that God has something that he's just going to, he, he, he's keeping it secret just for us. Isn't that something? Then he says, this, is, this blows me away. Receive authority over the nations. Now, I don't have to tell you how many times after hearing the news or watching the news and I hear something terrible happening, how I wish I could have some power to change things right then and there, you know, if I were king or president or judge, this is what I would do. And of course, that makes us feel very vulnerable and powerless because we can't do that. We can pray and say, God, you know, help these people you know awake. But now I read this, We're going to receive authority over the nations. What nations? I don't know? They're going to be nations, and, and you're going you're going to be made governor or president or ruler of it, isn't it? Think about that. God's going to give you authority over the nations. That's a big one. Appear in the book of life. We know that where there's a special book, your name's going to be there. And that means you move forward. <laughs> you're going to be a pillar in the temple in God's city. When we speak about pillars, we speak about people that are you know strong, that are dependable, that are recognizable for the good things that they do, that, that sustain a community. And so God says, you're going to be one of those people in God's temple. In God's city in the new Jerusalem. And number seven, one of my favorite, we're going to be sitting with Jesus on his throne. Now, no king on earth would let somebody else sit on their throne with him or without him. (laughs) Neither way. But Jesus invites us, his people, to rule with him. To rule with him. Think of what that means. Think about the implications. There's a lot of power, a lot of authority that Jesus is willing to share this, but it will only be for those who are victorious. It will only be for those who want to be with him. Think about what these mean. I just gave you a little glimpse of things that I've thought, but you really deepen your meditation on these things that Jesus say here, and they are just full of rich imagery and encouragement. Read again what each of these promise means to you. From your current point of view. What does it mean to walk in the manner of Christ? Yeah, because all these things look great, but they're not really happening right now. We are tasting that God is good. We are seeing some power that we're being given over certain things. The authority that we have to say no to sin, to put it in its place. That's a power that's going to keep us enduring. But it means that even though we're still vulnerable to evil and suffering, We can rise above it. We can rise above it. And we don't really need psychologists or psychiatrists or anything like that. Okay. Sometimes we may need some, you know, to help us get there. I I acknowledge that. Okay. But only Christ can give us this authority to rise above all these things as Jesus triumphed. Because it's only in this manner that we will be victorious. This is the testimony. Of the saints. This is the testimony of Jesus. This is the testimony. Of a slaughtered lamb. How many. How many consider. Being slaughtered a victory. Well Jesus did. Even George Lucas portrayed this reality. In episode 4. A new hope. Remember when Obi-Wan Kenobi told Darth Vader. That that if he was slain. What did Obi-Wan say to Darth Vader. You remember that. He said I'm going to become more powerful than you. If you kill me. And that's the truth. I mean, that was just the movie. (laughs) But but in our reality, when Jesus was slain, what did he become? He became more powerful. When you are slain, what will you become? You will become more powerful. So he was not that far. Maybe he took a peek at the book of Revelation here. That's precisely what's going to happen to us. It already happened to Jesus. We have that guarantee. You doubt, look, it already happened. He's leading the way. It's the truth. He became vulnerable for our sake became that slaughtered lamb to destroy the works of the devil, to break us free from the yoke. And so now that's what we're doing. But it requires carrying the cross. Don't forget that. We have to carry the cross. But we do so in anticipation of a victory that's already won. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Thank you very much for listening. I hope the Lord gave you insight into conforming to Jesus with today's message. I always appreciate feedback. You can send me your thoughts, musings, and comments directly through the Anchor app. You can also contact me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing.